Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You're listening to Working, the podcast about what people do all day. I'm Jacob Brogan. For this season of Working, we left the East Coast behind and flew to Detroit. We're speaking with eight people who are drawing on the city's complex history as they work to create its future. While we associate Detroit with the automotive industry above all else, not everyone who works in that industry is building cars. For our third episode, we visited the General Motors Battery Lab to chat with Mark Hughes, who has the peculiar job title of Cell Technical Specialist. I think that's what he calls himself. In essence, what that means is that he conducts a kind of forensic analysis on car batteries that have broken down under experimental conditions, trying to figure out how the company can make their electrical vehicles perform better. Hughes goes into detail about what that work involves, telling us about the process of opening batteries up and solving the mysteries of what went wrong inside them. He also gives us a tour of the battery lab itself, discussing some of the devices that he and his colleagues use in their detective work. Then in a Slate Plus Extra, Hughes talks about his own relationship to cars and tells us what he drives. If you're a member, enjoy bonus segments and interview transcripts from working plus other great podcast exclusives. Start your two-week free trial at slate.com slash working plus. What is your name and what do you do? <laughs> Hi, I am Mark Hughes and I am a cell technical specialist at General Motors. Cell technical specialist. I, I don't think I know what those words mean. What does that, <laughs> what does that actually involve? <laughs> so basically uh, what I do is I... Uh, the battery cells that are put into vehicles. Uh, okay. Picture like a two by four sized like a pack stack of electrodes. So those batteries are put through tests in the battery lab here, and um, we want to figure out the battery chemistry in extreme circumstances. So overcharging or puncture or different types of strenuous tests like that. And um, when those batteries uh, fail under those. Uh, circumstances, they're then given to me, and then I perform what's called a battery teardown. And okay. what I do is I literally cut the pouch that the battery is encased in, and I open it up, and I uh, look through the electrodes and try to piece together what happened in the chemistry of the battery during these extremely strenuous test environments. So you're doing, like, forensic autopsies on batteries. Basically. Yeah, that's a good way to think of it. It's kind of like detective work, all very uh, non-standard. Uh-huh. So, uh, all right, l- I have a lot of questions about batteries, but but let's take a step back. How did you end up working on the chemistry of batteries in the first place? How did you get here? Well, um, I would say my love for batteries really started in college. I went to school at UC Berkeley. I did my undergraduate degree there. I graduated in chemical engineering. And uh, while I was there, I worked at Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory, which is uh, right next to the campus up on a little hill. And uh, what I did there was I worked on what's called lithium sulfur batteries. Now, that's a very experimental, advanced, uh, not really in the realm of like commercial production. Mm. But what I saw there were some crazy potential for what batteries could be used for. These uh, lithium sulfur coin cells that I was making displayed energy capabilities that are far beyond what I'm used to in like a, say, like a lithium ion battery in a cell phone or a laptop. So um, when I realized what was possible with lithium sulfur batteries, I started to think, well, what, how could we possibly get our current batteries to where these batteries could be, right? So yeah, from there, I just started studying batteries. I took 
electrochemistry classes in Berkeley. And uh, after my internship was done at Lawrence Berkeley Lab, I went to a career fair and General Motors was at the career fair. Now, typically, like big companies at these kind of career fairs, you know, you kind of give them your resume, you never hear from them again. Mm -hmm. But uh, I walked up to the table and I started describing the kind of work that I do, the highly experimental, like theoretical chemistry that I was working on. And it really resonated with what they were looking for in terms Mm -hmm. of uh, a battery engineer. So uh, I was scheduled for an interview, right, like the following Monday. And then uh, they flew me out here for the on-site interview and the rest is history. Nice. So how long have you been working here now? Uh, since August, so coming up on my ninth month. And are the batteries you work in just batteries that would go in any car, or, or are there specific vehicles that, that uh, these batteries are going into? Since I've been hired, my main focus has been the Chevrolet Bolt EV cells. So the um, high energy density, high power, like um, the, the, the ones that give you the 238-mile range, like mm-hmm. those are typically the ones that I'm, that I'm working on. But um, over the course of my day, like I can work on cells from any number of uh, electric vehicles, the Spark EV, the Volt, even Cadillac uh, hybrid cells. Now, that's a little bit less of more on, on the outside of what I do. But, yeah, tip, I could work on any sort of cell from any sort of like either current production or experimental pack type of uh, future like research and development type of things. So this is probably where I confess that. Not only do I know almost nothing about chemistry, but I know even less about the chemistry of batteries. The, the batteries that are going into uh, Chevy Bolt or, or one of these other vehicles that, that you might have contact with, I assume are, are significantly different from the battery in uh, a conventional car in important ways, right? Right, exactly. So the Bolt EV cells specifically are much higher in energy density. They're they're heavier than your typical 12-volt battery packs that you would put in like your typical vehicle that helps you start your car up. They have a lot of charge capability. They are typically more uh, robust in terms of uh, cycle life. These last much longer than your typical uh, batteries uh, when you when you take into account the performance because batteries, as you know, you're familiar with like the double A or the or literally all I'm familiar with, yeah. and, and barely that. <laughs> well, you have your your typical like your your phone battery life, right? Your your lithium ion battery in your phone. Right. Uh, that's something that'll last you, you know, th- three to four years. You know, you're mm-hmm. using that every day. But these, in theory, my my phone battery seems to die out pretty <laughs> fast. <laughs> yeah, exactly. In theory, but uh, yeah, the Chevrolet Bolt EV cells uh, specifically are are built to last. Really built to lifetime of the car plus. So, are there significant chemical differences between the batteries in different kinds of vehicles? Uh, Yes, there are. Uh, So they're all going to be lithium-ion batteries, at Uh least the ones that I work with uh, here. What does that mean exactly, lithium-ion? So what provides the car power is the movement of electrons through the circuit system. And where those electrons come from are the the lithium-ions within the battery. And so these lithium-ions move back and forth between two sheets of metal. And the two Mm -hmm. sheets of metal are your anode, which is your negative side, and your cathode, which is your positive side. And when you're charging the battery, lithium ions move from the positive side to the negative side, mm-hmm. and when you discharge it, they go the opposite way. And while you're discharging it, the, they take the electrons from these lithium ions, they move, the, move it through the entire circuit of the car, and that gives what, that's what gives the car power. It moves it forward, turns on your lights, starts your engine, all that sort of thing. So chemically, that's different from other types of batteries? So chemically, it is not different from other types of batteries because the basic idea is the same. Okay. Lithium ion moves back and forth and provides the electrons that provides power to the car. Where the batteries that we use, where that differs is, is the amount of charge that can be stored within that battery. Now, the sheets of metal, they have what on them, what's called, those are called electrodes. And those electrodes are typically, if you want a really high-powered battery, then they are thinner. But if you want a high-capacity battery, they're thicker. So typically what we see in the Chevrolet Bolt EV cells is thicker electrodes, which allows for higher uh, charge capacity, which gives you that 238-mile range in one charge. Now, lithium-ion batteries are very different from what you see in typical AA alkaline batteries because those are not rechargeable, right? All the chemistry that happens is irreversible. And so the point with lithium ion batteries and lead acid and nickel metal hydride is that those are all reversible types of chemistries. But what sets lithium ion batteries apart from your nickel metal hydride or your lead acid batteries is the uh, large 
energy density that comes with lithium because lithium is a extremely light metal and it's very, very easy for it to give up its electrons in order to donate them to the circuit that, that gives power to the rest of the vehicle. So the goal of the work that, that you and others are doing here is, is to kind of increase the density of these batteries, to, to give them a longer charge, yep, it is more, to, more resilience, and so on? Yes, exactly. Uh, the point is to maximize the capability of lithium-ion battery chemistry, yes. How do you do that? <laughs> well, there are, there are lots of different ways that you could do that, right? Um, so the construction, if you basically want to think of the lithium-ion battery into four main components, it's uh, the negative current collector, which is your, your anode, your separator, and your positive current collector, which is your cathode. And the fourth uh, component is your electrolyte that houses all of these different components. Mm -hmm. Now, each of those different components could be changed to affect the battery chemistry accordingly. If you're looking for a high power battery, you need the lithium ions to be able to move very quickly through the electrolyte solution. So you can fix that by making the separator have very little resistance or you could increase the mobility of the lithium ions in the electrolyte by changing the different additives that you put in the electrolyte, making all of those lithium ions move very quickly through it. If you want to increase the capacity, you increase the thickness of the electrodes on those current collectors, the negative and positive current collectors. Do some of these things potentially disrupt the others? I mean, do you have to find a balance yeah. between them? There are always trade-offs between when you're talking about battery chemistry, because there's only so much energy that each lithium ion cell can provide. Mm -hmm. So if you're going to focus on having the battery be a high power battery, then you're going to sacrifice some of that capacity because you need, in order to have the lithium ions move very quickly back and forth, you kind of sacrifice the amount of capacity that you can have because those electrodes can't be too thick. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to Ramp.com easy. Ramp.com easy. R-A-M-P dot easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. So do you have a typical day? I mean, what do you do all day? Um, that's an interesting question because typically it's been changing since I've gotten here, which is exciting because mm -hmm. I, I, I love being able to say that I can do different things every day. But on a typical day, my main job is to do uh, battery cell teardowns. So I take these battery cells that have been tested in packs and under various conditions, and I literally cut them open with an X-Acto knife along the, the body of it. And what, is, what are you, what's the material you're cutting through? Uh, the material that I'm cutting through is the plastic pouch that okay. encases the, the electrode stack. Okay. And um, once I cut that open, I peel the pouch away, and then I have to cut the electrodes away from the tabs. What do they look like? So the electrodes are these are about 64 sheets of metal that all come welded together into one tab at the end of the battery, and that's where the battery is connected to the rest of the And they're the like pack. super thin sheets if you can Very cut through thin. them. Yeah, yeah. like um, on uh, micrometers okay. thick. Um, like, a, like aluminum foil, basically, sure. as thick as aluminum foil. Yeah. And... Um, once I cut those electrodes away from the rest of the tab in the pouch, I extract the electrode stack all as one stack. I take it out, put the pouch away for further analysis if needed, and um, I um, peel the electrodes apart one by one, and I inspect them all. Uh, front and back, I look around the edges for any sort of features. I look. What, what kind of features are you looking for? So, like What would be a, a telltale sign here? Um, it depends on the type of thing that you're looking for, right? So let's say that the battery is experiencing uh, a cell droop, which is, or a voltage droop, sorry. Uh -huh. 
let's say that the battery is experiencing a voltage droop. I said okay, like I knew what that meant, but I don't know what that meant. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So when we charge a battery, uh, to monitor how full of charge the battery is, we typically look at the voltage of the battery. And that can be anywhere between 2 or 5 volts, depending on the uh, battery chemistry and depending on what type of cell it is. Um, a lot of times, if we charge up a cell to a specific voltage and it doesn't hold that voltage, we are looking for what could have caused this battery to not stay in this high-powered state. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of times, what you'll see in batteries that can't hold their voltage is uh, what's known as uh, an internal short. And when that happens, either some part, maybe part of the negative tab, accidentally breached one of the electrodes or um, something in manufacturing, uh, there was a manufacturing issue or um, something of that nature, but uh, the electrical circuit that's inside of the battery uh, becomes compromised. And when that happens, you have an area on the electrode that is sort of like a hotspot for all of those electrons mm -hmm. and all those ions to go into. And uh, when that happens, you usually have a little bit of heat that's given off. So if I'm looking for an internal short, I'm looking for a small black area that looks burned on the mm -hmm. surface of the mm -hmm. electrode, usually around some other uh, metal type of interference point, basically. So that's kind of the one, so and one example. That might then help you uh, identify a production or manufacturing issue that you could then pass on to, to improve for future iterations of, of the battery? Yes, exactly, exactly. It's very much in a loop. Everything that I learn gets fed back up to uh, management or a supplier. And uh, we work very, very closely with our suppliers. So a lot of times they're down there with me looking at the batteries uh, alongside me. And um, yes, once, those, once that information gets fed back up top, then uh, new requirements trickle down to the suppliers, manufacturers, and um, we have this improved product. And then that cycle just continues. Mm -hmm. So, so some failure states in these batteries, is, is that the right term? The failure state here? Is that uh, failure modes, probably. Okay. Um, All right. So, but, yeah. Uh, yeah. So, so some of these, these, these batteries that, that are not working right, that, that come to you, uh, it's, it's going to be a, a manufacturing issue. But I, I imagine that there are other things that, that uh, make a battery not work as well as you want it to. I know that my cell phone, when it gets really cold, the battery dies much more quickly. Uh, than it would otherwise. I imagine that that's something you're trying to avoid with with car batteries, right? Right, exactly. And that really gets to the heart of what we're doing here in the battery lab. You know, we have the uh, facility is huge, 85,000 square feet, uh, largest battery lab in North America. And so what we're doing there is we're putting our batteries through exactly the kinds of conditions that you're talking about, cold temperatures, hot temperatures, high humidity. And we're trying to be preventative and say, okay, let's say a battery is, is introduced into this environment. How will it respond? Mm -hmm. And how can we um, improve the construction and chemistry and all these little intricate choices about battery design uh, in order to make them more robust to those kinds of conditions. So do you have ways to simulate those kinds of environments and conditions in your work? Yes, absolutely. Um, we have thermal chambers that can um, put it through extreme temperatures. How extreme uh, are we talking? Yeah, I'm not sure exactly about the temperature ranges, but I know they can get to a, a well below freezing and well, well above and below any sort of environment that you would see in this country, <laughs> especially. Right. Or this really this world, honestly. Um, Let's hope. Yeah. <laughs> but um, yeah, uh, high humidity. We can go zero to 100% humidity if we want to test something. Is this the same dry. systems or the same uh, yep. machines that allow you to test humidity? Yep, exactly. Same system, same machine. So we can put it in a really hot, humid environment, or we can put it in a really cold, dry environment, or a really cold, humid environment, or a really hot, dry environment, right? Mm -hmm. Any sort of, all those sorts of uh, conditions are available for us to test, mm -hmm. yes. And is looking at batteries after you've tested them in those kind of conditions uh, similar to, to looking at a battery that's come in that has failed for some other reason? Um, typically, yes, because we know a lot about the chemistry that's going on inside of the battery. So a lot of these reactions that we see are pretty uh, predictable across uh, these different uh, conditions mm -hmm. because we're, we're really looking for 
reactions. And if we know about the conditions that the battery is in, it's much easier to predict those reactions. And that's kind of what my work centers on is really knowing those reactions and being able to pinpoint exactly what's going on and when. All right, so once you've figured out what's going on and when, how do you pass that information on? Uh, do, you, do you write lots of memos? Are you, <laughs> uh, are you calling people up on the phone? Typically, I uh, have the, the lab generate a report. Okay. Uh, Teardown report is usually what, what I'm, what I'm uh, producing. And uh, what is contained in this report is um, all the history that the cell has been through, all the tests and everything, serial number, when it was made, um, all, all sorts of information about what the battery was before it went into the test, um, information about the test, and then what we found. So pictures. Um, we use different types of analytical techniques uh -huh. to um, look for, let's say, like look for different types of species in the battery or look for... Uh, species, not like, not like mice. No, <laughs> no, not like mice. Species like, uh, like chemical species, elements, okay. uh, yeah. compounds, that gotcha. sort of thing. Uh, not, nothing, nothing living. <laughs> <laughs> um, this is inorganic chemistry. Yes, yes, it is. In every sense. Um, and typically in this report, we have extensive amounts of pictures. Uh, usually I take a picture of each side of each electrode in the battery and, um, label it. So we know what orientation it was in, what orientation it was, uh, in the pack. Then we write, uh, a procedure of what, what we did in the battery. Um, what did we, what were we looking for? What did we find? What, what do we think happened? What was our proposed mechanism? And we have a lot of supporting tests that we run on the batteries to kind of uh, um, uh, guide those conclusions. So the types of tests that we're looking for are like uh, x-ray diffraction is one of those. And that basically shoots high energy beams at, at either the uh, electrode or the separator or whatever is under uh, test. And it basically tells us about all the different uh, elements that are present in that sample. Mm -hmm. And uh, and then you just send that on to to management, right? right. So typically, I work very closely with my boss. My boss, um, and that's been a, a thing that I've really loved about working at GM is that mm -hmm. I feel like management is very involved in the work that I'm doing, and they mm -hmm. really believe that the the work that I'm doing is not only important but uh, necessary to make these kinds of decisions. So really, I feed that information forward to my boss, who will tell her boss or um, maybe go to a supplier. And a lot of times too, these reports are shared with suppliers because they, they need this information too, of, to guide their design of cell of the cell or cell chemistries or dimensions and things like that. And are you ever talking with other people involved in the actual car design process to, to figure out what their needs are or, or how, um, how, how the machines are working? Um, typically not the car design process, but, um, Anybody who works on the so the the cells are placed into packs mm -hmm. or the cells are placed into modules and those modules are placed into packs. Mm -hmm. So I work with people who do module design and pack design and uh, battery frame design and um, all sorts of like mechanical features of what you would see uh, on a pack inside of a vehicle. So that's probably as far as I go. But beyond that, uh, I don't really yeah. interface much with like chasey or engine or transmission or anything like that. I guess I shouldn't be surprised by this, but it, I am. It sounds like it takes a lot of people to design one battery. <laughs> yes. Uh, yes and does. make sure that it, that it works optimally. Right. It does. Uh, how many people do you work with directly? I mean, on, a, on a given day, how many people are you talking to or, or, or communicating with, do you think? Um, it, see, that's a good question because it really depends on sure. what kind of program that I'm working on. Mm -hmm. So, for the Bolt EV, uh, you could say I work directly with probably a dozen or more people on any given day. And those people might be different uh, depending on which day it is. Um, and that's typically I'm working with people in research and development. I'm working closely with the, 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 the material lab here, the chemists here who run those tests. I'm working closely with uh, module and pack developers. I'm working closely with my own boss and I'm working closely with suppliers. So depending on the day, like it could, I could talk to, you know, 
20 or more people in one mm-hmm. day to try to find the answer for like one question. Yeah. Um, and then other days I work with two or three people and we have one goal that we want to work on, like say in a teardown or something. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that's all we really need because only one person needs that information. So it depends really on the questions being asked, how many people I really talk to. Sure. How long do those, do those teardowns take, uh, from, from getting a, a battery that you're supposed to look at in to, to sending out some kind of report on it? Um, so the report turnaround time is, um, this is, we try to keep it very standard so that people know when their results are coming. Mm-hmm. And it's typically the teardown itself of a cell, um, cutting it open, getting all the electrodes apart, labeling them, taking all the pictures, typically takes about four hours. Um, and we do two cells at a time. So that's four hours for two cells between two people. And then the results after submitting all the samples for the different types of tests, different types of, um, you know, analysis, uh, getting all those back and then compiling all into one report that typically takes about two weeks. Mm-hmm. The, this teardown process sounds super technical, kind of wonky in its own way, but it also seems like it might be a lot of fun. Is it? Yes. I would say the teardowns are absolutely the most <laughs> fun part of my job. Yeah. Cause like I said, you know, it's, uh, <clears throat> well, because teardowns are such non-standard work, mm-hmm. right? Um, there really is no handbook for how to do a battery teardown because you really, a lot of times, if you're working with something that you've never seen before or a cell chemistry that you're not familiar with, Mm -hmm. you could not be sure what you're exactly looking for. Now, typically most battery chemistries for, for, um, lithium ion cells are pretty similar for what Mm -hmm. we're looking for. But things, even small things like dimensions or electrode thickness, separator type, those things could, could those small variations could result in huge like consequences and changes throughout the battery and battery chemistry. So that could change um, what the, even the appearance of what we're looking for. So let's say an, an internal short on one battery might look very different from an internal short on, an, on another battery. Have you ever opened up a battery and just realized that it was totally mysterious to you you just couldn't figure it out right away anything that you had to like really do serious detective work on that that jumps out for you yes i have and actually uh this cell that was mysterious before we even tore it tore it down so we were delivered a cell that um had so before i go into this story i'll explain a little bit more about the pouch of a cell and the the pouch that encases the cell is a multi-layer plastic um, with a sheet of aluminum. So you have one, the the innermost layer, the one that's closest to the battery, that's polypropylene, typically uh, a a plastic uh, polyethylene or, or, you know, your typical, like um, what what we, what you would get coffee grinds in Mm -hmm. if you bought a bag of coffee. And um, so um, on the outside of this cell, one of the layers, one of those innermost layers was breached. And, but the outermost layer was still intact. So what we saw was electrolyte that was leaking out of the battery, but being collected in this little outer layer of really thin plastic. Like a pustule, it sounds like, on the exactly. skin almost. Yep, exactly. Like, like, a, like a pustule on the skin. And um, we noticed that there was, a, uh, on the other side of the battery, there was another uh, little small uh it wasn't as advanced. There wasn't as much electrolyte leaking out of it, but it was a very small hole that looked very similar to the one on the other side. And now both of these are um, uh, typically what we see when we see uh, uh, pouch degradation is not, um, it's not internal. It's an external thing. Mm -hmm. So something on the outside has worn through it or something like this. So um, this is an especially strange example to look at. So what we did was, um, we were looking for any sort of internal breach of like where, how this could have happened or how this could have degraded. And um, the teardown process for this one was a little bit different because I had to be extremely careful because we didn't know where that breach was. So Mm. I could have accidentally cut the breach and then that would have made the failure analysis that much more difficult. Mm -hmm. So um, I cut the, the, the shape that I cut is usually uh, like an I, like a capital I. Mm-hmm. Cut down the middle and then across the top and so across can, the bottom. So that you can peel the package open, sort of. Right, exactly. 
So for this one, I cut a little bit higher and a little bit lower than I usually do. So it's like a very skinny, very tall eye cut. And it's a good thing that I did that because when I pulled up the, the top part of the pouch, what I noticed was there was um, the inner polypropylene layer were sealed to each other hmm. uh, on, on either side of the pouch. And so I looked down at the bottom and there's evidence of internal sealing uh, near those holes where the electrolyte was starting to leak out. And uh, it turns out that the battery, um, the conclusion that we reached with that is that there is a heat sealing issue. Hmm. So what I mean when I say heat sealing is typically when you're constructing a cell, you have all of these, you have an electrode stack, you wrap that up in a separator, you put that into the pouch, and then you put the electrolyte into, into the pouch. And after that, you seal the battery all around the pouch using heat and pressure. Mm -hmm. um, what we had noticed was there were two, uh, the conclusion that we reached with this uh, battery cell that we had just torn down was that there was a, a, a two localized uh, hot spots, like um, where the heat had gotten too high and uh, the heat sealing position had gotten too low on the battery. And uh, it actually melted those inner plastic layers together. Hmm. And it did that at the top and the bottom. Now, the spots where the holes were more severe, where it was actually leaking more electrolyte, that's where the more severe heat sealing issue happened. And then I, I cut the battery open at the top and I looked at the top and sure enough, there was the beginning of that melting of the, the plastic together hmm. uh, towards the top of the battery. So um, that was probably one, one of the ones that really confused us at first because we really didn't understand like how it could have happened you know, on the inside. But yeah, we figured out it was partially a heat sealing issue. The more you talk about it, the more it really does sound like medical mysteries. <laughs> just, just at the level of like a, a battery that's gonna go in a car. Right, exactly, exacto knife and everything. You yeah. Know? <laughs> so you're, you're a relatively recent transplant to, uh, de to Detroit. Uh, how have you found the city? Oh, I love the city. It's true what everybody says. It's almost a cliche now that the Detroit's going through a renaissance. Mm -hmm. But I feel like almost uh, every other week there's a new spot to check out, a new pizza place or a new taco spot or, mm -hmm. you know, a new bar or something like that. Um, I've loved it. I love living, I love living like on the river. I live like right in the heart of downtown. So walking to like uh, baseball games or football games, like that sort of thing is like uh, – it's, it's just super convenient, and I love sports. I'm a huge sports guy, so I love being able to be around there. And Do you have I'm, to transfer your loyalties? from You're from the Bay Area. Do you have, you've, got, you've got a number of teams out there. Have you had well, to? Well, my family is from Michigan, so okay. I've always been a Detroit right. sports fan. So I really, it's kind of coming so back home. So it's convenient home. for you. Yes, it is. Yes, <laughs> it is. Uh, the, there are a lot of major companies in the Detroit area. I think Oracle has has uh, offices here, or Microsoft. But, but of course... Uh, the car industry is what we associate uh, with with the city more than I think any other type of business. Do you have a sense of uh, how GM and, and and the other companies that are, that have facilities here uh, have shaped or are shaping the city? Um, yeah, even even if it's as simple as uh, bringing in people like me, right? Mm -hmm. uh, going into my interview with General Motors, I thought that there was no way that they were gonna pick me. I thought that I was, you know, like very different. My idea of what GM was is very different from what GM is. Uh, the culture around GM has gone through, like I would say a dramatic shift in the last 10 or so years. Um, bringing in people like me who want to do like this, you know, highly, uh, you know, science-based, like forward-thinking, like, you know, uh, green technology, um, bringing me in and putting me into that city is kind of like GM's contribution. They're really not only, GM isn't just bringing people to GM, they're bringing people to Michigan. Mm -hmm. And by, by doing that, I think it is shaping the culture of the city, bringing in, you know, um, young recent graduates like myself to with all of our naive optimism <laughs> putting us in a city like Detroit and saying hey go do what you can here build what you can you know you've been doing this battery stuff since undergrad you look at batteries every day do you ever do you ever get tired of batteries what, what keeps you going 
Uh, no, I do not get tired of batteries. And really what keeps me <laughs> batteries going. Batteries just that cool? <laughs> yes, I do think so. And I will, I will say that to anybody who asks. I really think batteries are that cool. It's not even so much the novelty of it, right? The cool factor, you know, science. I love science in general. But the reason why I like batteries is because of the massive potential that I see these devices having, not only for electric vehicles, but for bringing electricity and even like a grid-based energy system to places that just don't have it. I see that the trend that lithium-ion batteries are making, you know, this is a, a, a technology that's really only 40 or so years in the making since the first like conceptual lithium-ion batteries were, were made. I really think we're only scratching the surface of what batteries can really do for a society mm. um, in terms of energy reliance and increased mobility when it comes to making, let's say we make batteries, you know, a tenth of the price that they are now. What is that going to do for electric car costs? You know, that's allowing mobility to a huge section of the country that really didn't have that kind of opportunity before. Mm-hmm. Um, so that coupled with my like firm belief in alternative energy as the really the future of um, you know, our, our energy dependence. That is really what keeps me in the batteries. You know, that's what makes me, you know, get up every morning when I get here and like research, like, you know, what are the latest trends in like mm-hmm. battery chemistry and stuff like that. Um, yeah, so definitely batteries are cool enough to keep me interested. <laughs> You're listening to Mark Hughes. After this brief break, he gives us a tour of the battery lab where he does most of his work. So could you uh, show us around your, the, the lab you work in? Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. All right, so we have to put safety glasses on before we go in here? Yeah, you have to wear the safety glasses, this protocol. I have to give you a short uh, safety review, let you know where all the emergency exits are, all the okay. proper procedures. But then after that, after you sign in, we can pop back in there. Perfect. You have terrible handwriting, maybe. <laughs> what about anything about me would suggest that I would have good handwriting? Literally not. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So this is it. This is the chemistry lab. Call it the material lab. It's interchangeable. It's a big open kind of industrial space. Yeah. Lots of... What are these kind of pipe-looking things coming down from the ceiling? These are uh, vents for the fume hoods. So when we're doing work inside of the fume hood, you have to have the vent, uh, the blower on. Uh And that basically takes all of the vapors and whatever might be coming off of whatever chemicals that you're working with and sucks it up and just vents it out into mm-hmm. a, a safe place to dispose of it. Cool. So in the back corner of the material lab is kind of my space. So mm-hmm. you see here, there is a, a glove box set up that has eight stations, four on each side. Uh-huh. These and are, to describe this for the listener, they are incredibly disquieting, giant, plasticine, black arms that are emerging out of glass boxes. But I assume you put your hands in those and then you can manipulate yep, things? Exactly. You put your hands into the into this black plasticine, uh, doomsday Rubbery hands. substance, <laughs> yeah. And, uh, it's like yeah, a monster arm. Exactly. So each of these glove boxes is in is an isolated environment. So there's no air, or there shouldn't be any air. Um, we have... Um, oxygen and moisture sensors in each of these glove boxes and typically we want to keep the oxygen and moisture contents below one part per million. Um, The gas that is inside these glove boxes is argon so it's completely inert and um, it it would extinguish any sort of uh, spark or any sort of uh, um, reaction that needs oxygen to happen like that sort of thing would be uh, extinguished immediately mm-hmm. because of the argon environment inside this club box. Cool. And what do you do in those boxes? What's That's where the teardown happens. Okay. Basically, the cells are put in, there's a small chamber on the side of the glove box that's uh, what's known as a cycler. And what you do here is you open this door and you put the cell inside this it's little like chamber. A little chute. Yep. Close it, lock it up, and then um, either then you evacuate it, you mm-hmm. get rid of all the air, and then you refill it with argon. Do that two or three times, and then you're able to shuffle it inside to make sure that no air gets inside the glove box whatsoever. And then 
this is all for safety yes. while you're uh, while you're working on the, yes. the stuff. You can't typically speaking, uh, it's unsafe to do a cell teardown outside of the glove box because there's oxygen and moisture and all sorts of different particles in the air that could interfere with mm -hmm. what you're what you're trying to look for. Cool. Are there are there sparks? Are there things coming off of the 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 cell as you're tearing it down that you see? We tear down cells uh, completely discharged, so okay. um, there aren't sparks per se, but uh, every so often, if it's not totally 100% discharged, which we do every time it's totally 100% discharged, there's still some of that residual uh, lithium ions left over, you know, no, no chemistry is perfect. So um, we don't see sparks, but a lot of times if you have like, say, a negative tab and a positive tab touch, and there's still some electrolyte in between them, you see a little bit of smoke or a little black mark that appears. But no, nothing drastic like a spark or anything. Yeah. Like no, nothing like that typically yeah. happens. Is it awkward to work with those, uh, those big rubbery arms? Do they impede your own mobility at all? It does when your height isn't uh, the best for uh -huh. where the arms are. You're so too tall for it? I'm 6'1", and these are designed for someone who's 5'8", so I gotta bend down a little bit and kind of do do, <laughs> do that sort of thing, but... 5'8's no, my height. Maybe I should get into battery teardowns. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no, typically it's it's a pretty it's pretty comfortable. Sometimes I bring a chair over if I'm in there for a long uh -huh. time. Um, but yeah, it's it's pretty comfortable. Uh, is there anything else we should look at in here? So over here, we have a couple of examples of Chevrolet Bolt EV cells. Now, this, what I have in my hand here is the cell. Um, like I said, your typical rectangular, long rectangular, almost two by four shape. The tabs are taped and the tabs, this is your positive tab and this is your negative tab and that will be so connected. On opposite, the, yeah. the narrow sides of the battery. Yes. Yep. And the tabs are these kind of orange, they yeah. look almost like a pull tab. So yeah, these tabs are taped and so if I take off the tape, you can see what the construction looks like underneath. Oh, okay. So these, this is the remnants of a weld. And um, what it's happens like a, is... a copper strip, it looks like? Yes. And what happens in the, um, the pack or the module setup is that three of these cells are going to be welded together mm -hmm. so that they all are charged and discharged simultaneously. Mm -hmm. And then throughout the whole uh, pack, you're able to, since they're all welded together in this sort of circuit, you can charge and discharge all of the batteries at the same time. And how many of these cells, because the thing you're holding is relatively small, it looks like it's about the size of a laptop battery, how, how many of those are in a given car? 288 of these. 288, Yes. all right. I, you need that 238 mile range, right? Right. <laughs> so each of these are 60 amp hour cells, and that, um, to put that in, into perspective, your iPhone battery is probably closer to one or two amp hours okay so my iphone battery is not going to drive a car far no it's not <laughs> uh cool uh anything else yeah. in here um there is cycler equipment in the back yeah, yeah okay. in the battery lab just for example i think he's doing a teardown right now correct okay oh john what are you doing uh, pulling electrodes. Yeah, oh, okay. so this is a typical uh, N2.1 cell that we use with the Chevy Bolt. And you can see we've disassembled it. The case is now off. And we have all the electrodes, the copper base being the negative electrode and the aluminum base being the positive electrode. You can see there's uh, 32 of these uh, sets of electrodes within this cell. Can you just say your name in case... Sure, John Moot, senior chemist in the uh, chemical lab at uh, General Motors. Thank you so much. Loving to tear down batteries every day. <laughs> it looks like a lot of fun. It is. So I like to think of John as the mad scientist of this lab. He's been doing this for quite some time. And Emphasis on the mad. <laughs> right. <laughs> nice. Uh, what's that, that piece of paper with the red dots on it there? So an interesting feature is these have electrolyte on them when we disassemble them. And so what we need to do is label each of these electrodes. So we came up with a labeling scheme where we use a paint pen. But it turns out the solvent actually interacts with the uh, paint pen just a little bit. And uh, what we have to do is get it flowing again. So we use that as oh dot on my uh, paint pen to get the paint pen running again. Interesting. So, so behind the glove box here, we have uh, cycler equipment where we do uh, either full cell cycling or coin cell cycling. Mm -hmm. 
And uh, what we do there is typically before our teardown, we do uh, five cycles, full, full uh, all the way charge, all the way discharge, in order to get an idea of the capacity and the um, behavior of the cell under these charge and discharge conditions. Cool. Can we, can we go take a look at those? Yeah. yeah. It's kind of a tight squeeze back here. I actually have two cells running right now. They're charging mm -hmm. in the back here. So this giant blue chamber is our full cell cycling chamber. Uh, this is temperature controlled. You can change it down here on, on the uh, on little uh, com controlling display. And uh, both of these cells are placed in compression fixtures because we standardly compress the cells at four PSI to um, while we're cycling the cell to get the full uh, efficiency of the battery. Is that similar to what they, the conditions they'd be under in a car? Yes. So then this, I mean, it just looks like a kind of large vice setup almost. Yeah, exactly. So the inside of this um, cycler setup are, is a, um, it's basically like a silver, almost like a lunch, the inside of a lunchbox, a giant lunchbox. Mm -hmm. um, there's a shelf where you place uh, the cell on top and then a shelf where you place the cell on bottom. There are a bunch of wires coming out of the side and these wires uh, act as your um, connecting points for your um, your negative, uh, negative tab and your positive tab, as well as two other alligator clips that act as your sensors for the voltage. Mm -hmm. And then that's feeding data to this computer over here? Yep, it is feeding data directly into the computer, which tracks the amount of charge that you put into the battery, the amount of charge you take out of the battery, the voltage, um, all sorts of um, uh, you know, electrical components that it's measuring at any given time. Cool. The battery lab, I guess. Battery lab, oh, yeah, that's about it for here. All right, cool. These arms, I'm never going to get over them. I don't know if you <laughs> see that shit in my nightmares. Yeah, it's, uh, it's weird. <laughs> <laughs> Something about the way that they seem to be kind of like gripping, too, yeah. because of the retraction of the fingers. Slate Plus. In a Slate Plus segment, I tell you about nightmares I had after seeing... <laughs> <laughs> Very specific key coding here. Whoa. All right, can you describe this room uh, that we're in? Yes, this is the battery lab. So what you see in front of you are rows of 10 foot tall, huge blue boxes. They look like, almost like shipping containers. Yes, almost, yes, exactly. A little smaller, but like. Right. Um, and you see the numbers on there, TCO1, TCO2, TCO3, that stands for thermal chamber. So all of these are thermal chambers where they put the batteries into uh, uh, extreme environments with, with respect to temperature or humidity or any sort of uh, environmental uh, conditions that you could think of. Yeah. There's a really peculiar smell here. It's almost like opening a box of Legos or something yeah. like this. Yeah. Uh, is That's that just the product of whatever they're doing to clean it? Or? Yeah, they got to keep it clean, right? Yeah. Uh, so what goes on in these in these big old chambers then? Um, typically, you're, you're, it's uh, battery cycling, right? Okay. So a lot very similar to the types of cycling that I would do on one cell mm -hmm. in the material lab. But uh, here, it's more bigger scale, like module level or pack level testing. And then there's this just like huge persistent environmental hum in yep. the room that probably here uh, on the tape. Um, is that just a product of all of the, the, the energy work that's going on in here? Yeah, what you're hearing is basically high voltage electricity just running through all of these different chambers. And uh, this kind of noise is, uh, it's persistent, um, partially because there's so many different tests going on, but also because some of these tests take you know, months, on months to complete oh, because, because of how running a battery over and over exactly again because cases. of how many cycles they want to do. If they're doing full life cycle testing, yeah, these tests can take take months and months and months to complete. Impressive. Yeah, we can. So, can you describe the inside of one of these yep. uh, chambers? So inside this open thermal chamber number two, you see uh, that black. Uh, boxy looking thing in the back now that's a pack that's full of uh, battery cells and that's going to be cycled in this uh, chamber to be tested 
So what you're looking at here is the inside of a Chevrolet Bolt EV pack, complete with 288 cells all ready to go. Um, so this would go inside a car? Yep, and it sits on the bottom, like okay. right below your feet um, in the Bolt EV. Uh, it says caution live cell on it. Is there, I don't see anything running into it. Is it just, a, oh, that's yeah. the live cell. So it, they have to uh, mark everything that's live. Any, any sort of cell that could still potentially uh, accept or give uh, any sort of um, charge, they have to mark that as a live cell, so especially here. Doesn't necessarily mean it's it's holding a charge right now. Just just that it theoretically could. Exactly. So you yeah. Definitely if, have to be careful. Exactly. It has the capability to hold a charge, so you got to be careful with it. Right. Cool. So this is it's pretty large. It looks like it's about like what three or four feet across, three and a half feet across, and probably about six feet long. Yeah. Yes. These are really large. So. In, in electric vehicles, you're replacing the engine entirely, right? So all of that space that was reserved for the engine is now being used for all of these battery cells. So that's why these battery packs are so large and they sit at the bottom of your Bolt EV. Cool. Uh, well, thanks for this tour. This is uh, fascinating. Uh, and thanks again for, uh, for talking to us today. This has of been a course. Pleasure. Of course. Thanks for coming and visiting. Thanks for listening to this episode of Working. I'm Jacob Brogan. If you want to hear just a little bit more of my voice, you should check out the latest installment of Slate's Audio Book Club, where I join Katie Waldman and Megan O'Rourke, uh, two very smart readers and very smart talkers, to discuss Durga Chubos's remarkable essay collection, Too Much and Not in the Mood. It was a fun conversation about a truly compelling book. Uh, you should read the book, uh, but you should also listen to that episode, whether or not you have, because uh, it was great talking about it. We'd love to hear your thoughts about working, of course. Our email address is working at slate.com, and you can listen to past episodes at slate.com slash working. Working is produced and edited by Mickey Capper. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.